Well, good morning, Cornwall. Glad to see you guys here. Um, just for the record, this is two weeks in a row that I've gotten to do this. So I, I promise if you were here last week, I laid down on the stage. I won't do that this time. Um, after that, uh, the intro video, does anyone else feel like running? Like chariots of fire? Who are we kidding? The only thing I run from are my issues. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you guys, come on. Work with me here. Uh, no, I am, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to start this off like Pastor Kip does every time. The year was 1997. Uh, I, I had just started coming to Cornwall Church and, uh, you know, just kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing and Christianity and what that really means uh, for me personally. And so um, I started coming to church here and then I, I started to, uh, this is when we're on the on the guide in the old building. Now it's called the A Church, right by Cornwall Park there. And, um, and so I was, I was playing on the worship team. And one day I asked uh, Mike Terrio, who is the uh, worship pastor then, I said, Mike, um, you know, I'm really interested in working with high school youth. You know, who do I talk to? And he goes, oh. He goes, you want to talk to Willow? She's our high school director. So I was like, oh, that's great. So I go over to her and I said, uh, hey, Willow, uh, my name is Ron. Uh, I'm interested in serving with a high school youth group. And she goes, dude, I have been praying for leaders, for youth group. Thank you. I, I love your voice. I love when you say, uh, dude. And I was like, oh, okay, well, awesome. So I, I did start to serve there. And, uh, you, you know, it was, it was awesome. I loved serving. But mostly what it did was I became uh, really good friends with Willow and her husband, Rob. So such good friends that, in fact, I, I actually moved in with them right before I got married to my wife, Cynthia. I, I moved into their house, and, and I was living in, in one of their rooms. And I think Willow was glad when I got married because Rob and I became really good buddies. And so for her, it was like she had two buddies rather than a husband and a roommate. And so... Uh, we had like these milkshake and movie nights, which were amazing and, uh, you know, that, but annoying for a wife, I'm sure. But then through our friendship, we, we started to, um, we were talking with some friends one night, I remember, and she's like, I just feel like I'm supposed to be writing a book. I'm going to write this book, and it's about my collisions with, with Jesus and this idea that, um, that through my life I continue to collide with him. And, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, we'll support you. But eventually what happened was this book idea became a small group with, with a group of college girls. And then what happened there is it became, it started to become these events. The first one was at First Pres here in town. And, and, and literally, literally thousands of women have been colliding with Jesus through this vision uh, that Willow had uh, with Collide. And it's been an amazing thing to see on my part because, like I said, you know, she was like, I've got this idea. And then God takes this grassroots thing and makes it amazing. In fact, I remember one time Willow said, uh, I... You know, I'm just standing here with these letters from women, and I'm, I, I don't know what to do with this. And I'm thinking, God's probably sitting there like, oh, I know. And it's going to be amazing because you're going to see it more. And so let's give a round of applause, huge applause for our friend Willow Weston. Yay, Willow! Dude! Dude. Thanks, Ron. Love ya. 
Well, thank you for having me this morning. I normally am sitting with you. Um, I'd love to trade places. If anybody wants to switch real quick, um, I'll take your seat. You can come up here. But thank you um, for joining us, those of you in Skagit and Boca Raton and those streaming online in their pajamas at 11.15 a.m. We're all jealous. Um, it's really great to be here. I get to um, share with you today, but Cornwall's a special place to me. I began my walk with Christ here. I've grown up spiritually in this church, and actually it was in this congregation that I began to realize that God could use me in ministry and as a leader. And Pastor Bob married my husband Rob and I over 20 years ago, and our kids get to grow up around here. And so I'm really, I'm really glad to be here with you today. Uh, I recently experienced what is called a foot refresher at a spa. I went there for my birthday and I checked in and they handed me that clipboardy thing with all the forms you're supposed to fill out telling them about all the bad rashes and surgeries and pregnancies you've ever had or not had in your life because apparently spas collect more information than surgeons. And so I filled that out and I handed it back to them and the receptionist said that I could up my service from a 50 minute massage to an 80 minute. And so I asked her how much that'd be in total and she said it'd be 70 bucks. And so I splurged because I thought someone gave me a gift certificate for my birthday, let's do this. So they walked me back to the relaxation room. Well, I sit down and I try to get cozy, but I'm fidgeting and I, I couldn't get cozy. And so then I saw the tea bar. So I walk over and look for Jasmine, but they didn't have it. So I took mint and then I went back down and sat down and realized I had to go to the bathroom because I was getting pee anxiety because I get pee anxiety when I think, oh man, I'm not going to be able to go for a whole hour. So, right, you're laughing because you have it right now. And so I went to the bathroom and I come back and in walks a pregnant lady and she sits directly across from me. And in order to like not hone in on her Zen time, I just kind of look to her left at the fireplace. And now I'm kind of like socially awkward, which I don't often feel. And she gets up and I don't know if it's because she felt my weird vibe or like she too discovered the tea bar, but up she walks. The second she gets up, this man walks in and I kid you not, he had an eye patch right? And he looks wasted, but he's probably just relaxed. I'll give him that. And he's probably about 60. And he takes the first chair he sees, which happens to be the pregnant lady's chair. Well, I start to feel anxious. Like, should I say something so this woman can get her seat back? And then I remind myself, like, she's a big girl. She can speak up for herself. And so I watch how this whole thing's going to go down, right? Because he's sitting in her seat. And I look over and you wouldn't believe it. Like so much for relaxation. This man's robe had popped open and all his man parts are right there for me to see. I was mortified and I'm watching this lady and she's walking over and her hands are full, right? And she starts to see what's going, she has tea in one hand and those dried fruit snacks in another that have been drying since like 1804 and you're wondering where the chocolate is, like that kind of fruit snack. And she's clumsily moving over trying to figure out what to do because this guy's sitting on her clipboardy for me things. And so she's moving back and forth and she just very sweetly invites him to remain in his seat. But she says, sir, my, my, my forms, you're sitting on my forms. And he offers to move and she declines and I leave to pee again. 
the entire massage, my mind was like, uh, like playing tennis on some kind of upper, like all the things that I needed to do started making giant lists in my head and I was getting anxious because I didn't have a pen to write them all down and I started becoming nervous about how Collide was gonna feed a thousand ladies the next week, we'd never done that and how would we love on them and mentor them and counsel them and inspire them and then I started writing sermons in my head that I didn't have time to write, that I needed to write and then I began thinking about my kids, these teenagers and everything they're going through, mean girls and stinky tennis shoes. And then I started thinking about my frequent headaches and if they meant I had a tumor. And the next thing you know, I was down the road of saying goodbye to my kids because the hypothetical tumor had killed me. And the tire massage, I didn't feel my feet. I felt my anxiety. I looked up mid-massage and apologized to the lady because I had to go to the bathroom again. I go to the bathroom, I come back, and she says to me, try to get back into your happy place. And I was like, happy place? I haven't gotten into my happy place. Then I walk out to pay the bill, and the lady said, that'll be $189. Apparently the $70 was just for the extra few minutes. So now I felt frustrated about the poor communication, trying to decide if I was gonna confront her on it. But then I was also thinking about my husband and how we were gonna fight over this excessive $200 foot massage that I didn't even get to enjoy because I got massaged by worry and anxiety. Life is like a trip to the spa, guys. Where we try to seek and find that happy place, but even with the best of intentions, awkwardness, confrontations, small bladders and big bills find us. And so does cancer and bankruptcy, betrayal and divorce, mental illness and learning disabilities, family dysfunction and feeling misunderstood. See, worry's so sneaky and fierce, it finds us at work, in bed, driving an I-5, in waiting rooms, and even in spas. We actually live in what some people are calling the anxiety culture. We worry as men and women, teens and children, we're getting gray hairs because we're nervous Nellies, we're taking chill pills because we're worried sick. We have economic anxiety, financial anxiety, relational anxiety, hormonal anxiety. We worry about getting into school. We worry about getting out of school. We worry about getting dates. Then we worry about getting out of bad dates. We we worry about being late. We worry about being too early. We worry that our dreams will never come true. And we worry that they might See, worry can present itself differently for each one of us. For some, it might look like insomnia, self-medicating, stress eating, shopaholism, or busyness. For others, it might look like just plain doing too much to please everyone around us. One second, we can be completely fine, and the next, a Facebook post just sends us into anxiousville. Worry and anxiety can look like pacing, sweaty palms, lack of self-care, impatience, irritability, overreacting, and faster than normal heart rate. It can also look like overanalyzing decisions, controlling things, lack of engagement, and the inability to filter the hypothetical from the reality. 
And for some of us, anxiety looks like this nagging sense that gets in the way of our everyday lives and maybe it has for years. And for others of us, we have actually sought the counsel of healthcare professionals and have come to accept that on this side of the perfect place we call heaven, worry and anxiety might be always with us, a thorn, if you will, that we will fight and battle. Worry is a friend to all stopping by for visits all too often. And for some of us, it's actually become our roommate. And the word worry actually means to choke or to strangle. And I want to read for a minute here some statistics on how much worry and anxiety are strangling our lives. In 2002, the World Mental Health Survey found that Americans were the most anxious people in the 14 countries studied and more, with more clinically significant levels of anxiety than people in Nigeria, Lebanon, and the Ukraine. In 2015 to 2016, stress accounted for 37% of all work-related ill health cases. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness affecting Americans, costing the U.S. $42 billion a year. And between 1997 and 2004, and I'll do the math for you, it's only seven years, Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications. Psychologist Robert Leahy believes and says this, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. And rates of stress, anxiety, and depression are rising sharply among teenage girls and what mental health specialists say is a deeply worrying trend that began with the rise of social media. These statistics are actually pointing to worry being an epidemic in our country. And this is actually what led me to write a 150 page Bible study book on this topic. Because what I have found is that worry has a voice. And worry's voice says, you should be afraid. And when we're afraid, what do we do? When we're afraid, we take matters into our own hands. When we're worried about our kids, we think to ourselves, I have to make everything better. And when we're worried about paying our bills, we work more hours. And when we're worried about being alone, we date everybody on this side of Timbuktu. And when we're worried about going bald, we go out and get tattoo pays, right? And when we're worried that our life feels like it's spinning out of control, we try to grasp for control. See, we attempt to be our own rescuer in others, which only increases our need for more rescuing. Taking worries into our own hands is actually what often causes broken relationships and shingles and sleepless nights, headaches, high blood pressure, strokes, teeth grinding, adult onset acne, stomach aches, and more. I mean, I could just keep going on. And we've tried a lot of things to free ourselves from worry. Puppies! Kale, golf, Netflix binging, working more, working less, drinking more coffee, drinking less coffee, Pinterest crafts, porn, you name it. And our attempts to take matters into our own hands don't actually set us free, but in fact, they seem to just create more circumstances to worry about than we had in the first place. It is fascinating to me 
that the God who made us, he put on flesh and bone and, and had an Adam's apple and experienced emotions and the ability to have a bad hair day. And he moved in with quirky, dirty, anxious people that cause anxiousness in each other. And this God cannot watch worry choke and strangle our lives and not suggest another way. And he, so he speaks into worry in his greatest sermon. But I'm going to warn you now. Here's the deal. Jesus goes to an unexpected place with worry, but he also goes to a deeper place than many of us want to go in this room today. And we're going to go there. So here we go. He starts like this, Matthew 6, 25. He says, do not worry about your everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food in your body, more than clothing? When Jesus says, don't worry, is he being lackadaisical, like don't plan for the future, don't work hard, care less about your bills, pay no attention to the relational brokenness in your life and war and politics and the current turmoil of the world. Just say, what else? I don't think so. In fact, I love what theologian William Barclay says. He says, it is not ordinary prudent foresight such as becomes a man that Jesus forbids. It is worry. Jesus is not advocating a shiftless, thriftless, reckless, thoughtless, and provident attitude to life. He's forbidding a care-worn, worried fear, which takes all the joy out of life. And you know what? That's where some of us are at right now. Jesus isn't discouraging hard work and being smart in preparation, but he's actually encouraging something else. See, Jesus is shifting us from all these worries we're looking at to looking at something else. And he says, look at the birds. They don't plan or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? See, Jesus is just reminding us of what is already true here, that God sustains the world around us. It's like God incarnate, God who came to collide with you and I. He says, instead of spending so much time looking at what you worry about, go outside and look around you. Can you not see? Look at what I sustain. I support the moon and the stars. I hold the earth on its axis. I'm the one that puts forth the apple on the apple tree and causes the carrots to pop out of the ground. I tell the bears to go into hibernation and the groundhog to push its way out of the dirt. I sustain these. Can I not sustain you? And Psalm 104 echoes this, and I want to take time to read it to you today. God makes springs pour water into the ravines and it flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers and the land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread, people, that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers, the high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. 
You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. And then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. All creatures look to you, God, to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you, God, open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. See, the psalmist here is suggesting that all creatures look to God's hand to give them what they need. And it's funny because we could sit on a park bench and watch a bluebird flit and notice its wings that are intricately made for flight. And we can instinctively trust that God made such as these, but why don't we trust the same for ourselves? I want you to look at your hands for a minute. Like actually like pull them out and look at them. You have 27 bones in your hands, 29 joints and 123 ligaments. Our opposable thumbs are what set us apart from all other animals except for the koala bear, which they're so cute. And apparently you cannot get a tan on your palm no matter what beautiful shade of color your skin is. Your fingerprint is 100% unique. No one in the world has had or ever will have your fingerprint. And think about what human hands can do. They can play the harp, knead bread, shake on a deal, and paint the Mona Lisa. They can hug, write love letters, start fires, and sculpt pottery. They can build the Eiffel Tower and throw a Super Bowl touchdown and perform heart surgery. Just your hands point to how intricately God made you. And if he intricately made you, is he not also able to take care of you? Even birds rely on God without worrying. They don't have Costco memberships or work their way up the corporate ladder. Birds rely on God for what they need and for what they need he provides. Jesus says, how much more does God value you? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. Jesus knew that his audience would get what he was trying to say because there are these beautiful lilies that grew on the Palestinian hillsides. And when a woman needed to crank up her clay oven to cook a meal for her family, she would throw these flowers in it to do that. And Jesus was saying, even the lilies are for you. And he goes on to saying, if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not certainly care for you? Why do you have so little faith? Do you see where Jesus is going with worry? He's going where we don't want to go and we're about to go there. He's drawing a connection between worry and value. See, it's a fascinating idea that our sense of value is perhaps connected to a lot of worries, root cause and worries cure. And if we don't have any other conversation today, we have to have this one. Have you forgotten your value? Who stole it from you? Because value can be pickpocketed without us even noticing. 
It can be abducted 20 years before we realize it's gone. Value can be ransacked in one experience and it can be embezzled over the course of time. It can be snitched by our closest friends, our greatest enemies, and the enemy himself. Value can be pilfered by words, circumstances, avoid, absence, the world's misplaced values. And value can be taken from men and from women when we're 100 and when we're 10. 10. That's how old I was when I laid in my bed home alone, hoping to fall asleep. And I heard a noise and it sounded like someone was breaking in through the bathroom door. And it was him, the man who took out his rage on my mother and I. And he found his way to our new place. And I stiffened my body, hoping he would realize that I wasn't there. And my mind began racing and I was thinking like, what could I, what can I possibly do? There's no strength that can match his strength. There's no cell phone to call for help. There's no parent that's going to defend me. And he got out a chair and waited for her to come home. And this, friends, is when fear moved into me and its stepbrother worry got a room too. Why? Because our sense of value is stolen the day fear moves in and says, you should be afraid. Eleven was how old my friend was when her mom had cancer. She went in for surgery and didn't come out. Blank pages in a story that should tell chapters of adventure and memories and experiences together. But no, none of that. Instead, no more I love you to the moon and backs. No more mom's favorite recipe. No prayers at bedtime. No boy advice when she needed it. No mom at graduation or her wedding. Our sense of value can get lost in a circumstance in life that just leaves a void. 12, 12-year-old 12 sweet Madeline walked up to a circle of girls and one girl in the circle said, who do you guys like better, Madeline or Jenny? And every girl said, Jenny, 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 I like Jenny better. Not one girl who was supposed to be Madeline's friend said, I like them both or I'm not playing this stupid game. And it's so easy to walk away from these kinds of circles into new ones, even decades later, questioning our worth. Our sense of value is stripped the day we begin to believe people won't choose me. 30, and they mourn the loss of their baby. It didn't make it to full term. They hadn't gone back to work yet and she was having panic attacks and more than grief started coming out and she started to share with me how she had terminated a pregnancy years before and she said, this, this loss is my fault. See, it was easier for her to hate herself than to lean into God's grace. Her faith in God's care for her was stripped the day she decided that she couldn't forgive ourselves. Because that's what happens. Our sense of value is robbed when we inflict a grudge upon ourselves for things we cannot forgive that God can. 40. 
And this man hated his high profile job, listing all the reasons he wanted to quit. And when asked why he doesn't walk, he said something like, I'm not sure I can keep up our lifestyle without it. And if I can't do that, will everyone still think I'm as great as they think I am now? Our sense of value is ripped off when our performance or success or what is measuring it. 50 and wondering where he was all the time. So she started tracking him on her iPhone and her worst fear became her reality. He was with someone else. He said he was no longer in love after 15 years. She wasn't enough to stay, she tried to be. In the empty closet, the cold side of the right side of the bed, the empty seat at the dinner table, she still wears his last name. She wishes he wanted her to. See, our sense of value is taken when people whose value has been stolen try stealing ours. 70, and their religious community told them that their son who had just committed suicide was in hell. And the message that they heard is that God thinks mental illness and despair deserve torture. And that was the day that they left the church with no intention to ever come back. And what about the man I know who married into Christian family and the Christian relatives, in-laws told him that they didn't intend to spend any holidays with his relatives because of their past. And the message conveyed was God doesn't do sinners. Or what about the woman I know who lost her mom when she was a teenager and a church leader forced her to sit in a room after her mother's funeral to think about things? The message this grieving daughter heard was, God wants you to feel guilty. You know what that is? That is broken theology and broken theology lies to us about God and then our sense of values plundered the minute we buy into broken theology that questions God's care for us. I wanna know who stole your value because someone stole my value and I want it back. And someone has stolen your value before and God wants to return it. See, God wants to replace your fear with courage and he wants to take your worry and turn it into peace. He doesn't want you anxious about what will happen next. I don't care who or what put fear into you. God is bigger and God is stronger and my God is to be feared and God does not want some fear bringer bringing down your life. God does not want you to keep thinking you need to worry and be afraid all the time any more than he wants me to still be that girl. No, God wants for us freedom. And God doesn't want anyone in any circle feeling as though they're not worthy of being chosen or stood up for. God wants for all of us belonging. And if you've been a victim of bullying or pushed out by mean girls or ousted by machismo, bro code, or deemed unworthy by religious Pharisees or made to feel as though you're not good enough for the cool kids club, God wants to set you straight. The cool kids are standing in circles where everyone belongs and any circle you're not cool enough to stand in is a circle Jesus was already pushed out of. And God does not wanna leave you in the emptiness and void that absence and death and divorce have left. And some of you have been wondering the answers to your questions for so long. Was I loved? Why didn't they show up? 
Do they think of me? Do I look like them? If they were here, would we have been close? See, God hears our cries and he knows our story and he desires to restore everything that we've been lost. So hold on to this promise that I've been holding on to. God, your God will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. He'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you've been scattered. And some of you have been drowning yourself in unforgiveness and enough beating yourself up over the head. All right, you messed up. You blew it. You did some things you, you regret doing. God does not want you to be held captive to your sin. No, God wants for us grace. And God does not want you measuring your value by the type of car in your garage, the number of digits in your salary, how many likes you have on Facebook, or how hot you look in a Speedo. <laughs> Those are definitely the wrong stats, I promise you. And if you measure your value by these things, your value meter's gonna tank, and God wants to keep you from that scary place. Like the guy who was willing to be miserable so that the people would think he had, um, had it all still. We're willing to do crazy things to hold on to that which we think gives us value. We're willing to, you know, greedily hoard, settle our standards, neglect our faith, ditch integrity, engage sick behaviors, become workaholics, say yes to stress and all its expenses. There's only one stat that should measure our value and that stat is this, one for one. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how valued you are. His life for your life. And some of you have been robbed. Someone who felt weak tried to overpower you. Someone who was insecure tried to steal your security. Someone who was afraid didn't want to be alone in their fear, so they tried to scare you. Someone wanted a family, so they tried taking yours. Well, guess what? Jesus loves thieves. He died next to two, became friends with one, but he wants zero to take from you because someone took from them. No, God wants a thief to come to him to get their value back instead of robbing yours. And you know what? God sure as heck does not want us believing broken ideas about him that in turn make us begin to believe broken ideas about ourselves. It is broken theology to communicate that mental illness and despair deserve torture. That's not the God I know. The God I know walks into tombs and he collides with people who are depressed and cutting and they're mentally ill and they're in absolute despair. It is broken theology to communicate that God doesn't do sinners. What did Jesus say? He said, I came for who? Did he say, I came for snobby, uptight, religious, rule-following, perfect, put-together Bible trivia winners? No, he said, I came for sinners. Let's do dinners. And God does not want you to feel guilty. I'm pretty sure the gospel is all about God wants you to feel guilt free. And if God wanted that woman in a room after her mom died to feel guilty, I don't think so. He wanted her to know that he loves her and he wanted to hold her and he's gonna walk alongside her in her pain. But instead she was damned to grief and wants nothing to do with the church to this day. 
See, God wants us to know him authentically as he really is. And the Bible says, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. And when you do, you're going to fall in love with a, a beautiful God. Because when you look at Jesus over and over again, when he collides with people, he collides with people who've lost their sense of value in small ways and big ways. And he gives it back. And the thing is, is that he wants to do that with you and I, but we have to allow him to go there with us. And what that means is that sometimes you have to go backward in order to go forward. And I know it's hard work. I call it soul work and it's something I've been doing for years. But the thing is, is that you have to do it. It's actually what helped me be able to recently sit face to face and brave the man who broke in to my house when I was a 10 year old girl. See, the thing is, is that you can't move forward and act as though it didn't happen. That's called a cover up. It's not a healing. Sticks and stones do break your bones and names do hurt you. You're not immune and your past runs faster than you do. Maybe you only need to go as far back as last week and maybe it's small, but if it's profound enough to still be here today and hurt you and bug you and stress you out, then it's pro gonna be profound enough to travel back and invite God there. But for some of you, man, you need to invite God way back. See, God wants to stitch us up in the places that need stitching. And God wants to stop the hemorrhaging, but God cannot do surgery until you own up to the fact that you need it. He cannot free you from your worry unless you allow him to replace your value. And he cannot replace your value until you say, hey, I think it was stolen. That one time, this one word, this one experience, you have to own it and allow him to meet you there. And allowing God to restore your value can happen in a lot of places. It can happen in an office with a trusted Christian counselor. It can happen in a small group here at church or in a quad. It can happen if you do one of the Clyde Bible study books that I wrote that invite Jesus into transforming the places that need it. It can happen in a conversation uh, today when we pray at the close. There are a lot of places it can happen, but it cannot happen outside of relationship with God over and over again, inviting him to restore your value when someone tries to steal it. And the thing is, is that we have a God who doesn't just say he values us, but he actually takes matters into his own hands. And more than 200 places in the Bible, it speaks of God's hand, which is always about God's activity in which he shows himself alive and well. See, God's hand rescues and creates and empowers and heals with his hands. And these hands who established the heavens and the earth and created you and me. These hands who sculpted the mountains and molded the ocean. These hands who made the sparrow and the chameleon, the lily and the rose, the cocoon and the butterfly, these hands made you. And these hands hold all power, all truth, all might, and they also love. And these hands entered into the world they made and broke bread and sat down with people no one else would touch. And these hands touched them at their very own expense. And these hands were nailed onto a cross, the right stretched out onto a beam and the left. 
And these hands say over and over again, I made you, I love you, I value you, I'll walk alongside you. If you have forgotten, let me remind you. See, the same hands that made you save you and they keep promising to be all that you need. My friend, who I mentioned earlier that shared with me the difficulty of losing her mom at age 11. She said she remembers her mom going in for surgery and she thought in her kid mind that that meant hope of her mom coming out and being better. And just this last year or two, my friends started processing the pain and went to counseling to deal with this. She decided to access her mother's 30-year-old medical records and she couldn't believe what she saw. The doctors had written comments about her mom blessing the hospital staff. This woman was full of joy and full of cancer. It had spread all over her body, but they didn't tell her that as a kid. So here at 40 years old, my friend was finding out that her mom knew the surgery had no chance of saving her life, and yet she still chose to undergo it in the hopes to extend her life, even if for the shortest time. These medical records told my friend how much her mom was willing to go through poking, prodding, needles, sickness, and going under the knife, even if to be with her kid for just a little longer. And the same God who gave my friend this gift to know how valued she was is the same God who hands over his medical records to all of us so that we will know how valued we are. This God chose to be poked, prodded, stripped down, mocked, manhandled, flogged, whipped, pierced, all so that you and I would know what great lengths he will go to for us. And if you've ever wondered or you ever wonder in the days to come when you're stressed out and worried if God cares about you and God is able to take care of you, look at his medical records, look at the cross. Never doubt, never question, never second guess. To be a person of faith is not to not stress out or not to struggle or not to make mistakes. That's not what a person of faith is. A person of faith is to have hope in and beyond worry, to look worry square straight in the eyes and decide to believe, claim, and place all your bets on this one thing. My God values me. When the lie in the middle of the night says, oh, you're gonna fail, Hope says, no, 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 my God writes too good a stories to write an end story of failure. And when cancer says, God wants you to suffer, hope says, no, 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 my God values me too much to want me to suffer. And a relationship says, you aren't worthy of sticking around for hope says, no, my God says otherwise. And when overdue bills say, there's no way, hope says, oh no, my God makes a way where there is no way. And when your kids are going off the rails and you're worried sick, you can claim with hope, my God loves my kids as my own. We are a people of hope. So every time worry sneaks in, day after day, month after month, year after year, let's see it as an invitation to invite God in in that life-changing relationship and ask him to remind us of our value once again. Jesus wraps up his thoughts on anxiety and I'll finish with his words. So do not worry for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let me pray. I wanna invite you if you want to to open your hands up, palms up is what I call it with a posture of wanting to receive from God. God, we come before you and we recognize that you know what we walked in here with. You know our worry and our stress. You know our fears. You know the ways we're harboring grudges against ourselves. You know the pains we've experienced along the way and how they're still speaking to us. So God, you are a God who values us more than we can begin to understand. Will you by your spirit come into this place and meet each one of us here? Will you replace all of the lies with your truth? Will you break down the walls that keep people out from loving us? And will we be loved by you? God, I pray for those who walked in here today, stumbled in here, don't quite know how they got here, and they haven't wanted anything to do with you for a long time. Lord, will you make your home in them? And if that's you this morning, all you have to do to invite God into your life is just say, God, I want you to move into my life. Thank you, Jesus, for being my rescuer and my God. Lord, I pray that you would instill value into us in such amazing ways that we could go out beyond this church and share this message with people who forgot that their lives matter. And may you use that to do amazing things in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.